Good morning, church. It's good to see you guys this morning. I really love you guys. I don't know if I tell you that enough. Uh, I love having these opportunities to come together to worship God. If you're not, if you're not regularly with us, and we call this our worship gathering. We try to be intentional with our language. We see ourselves as the church, and we see in Scripture the church gathers often to worship. And so this is our gathering to worship God, and, and we worship Him because we've seen Him active in our lives throughout the week. We've seen Him using us uh, for His glory. We've seen Him blessing us and, and being the faithful God we know Him to be. And, and so having the church, seeing that we're one body, and having the opportunity to come together to worship is something we hold very special. And so Sundays are a special day for us, but so, are, so is every other day of the week because we see God being the God He is every day of the week, and we see that He's made us the church every day of the week. And so we need to remember that often. I think as we approach this passage in Jonah this morning, it's a good thought to go into it with. Um, I've, I've been discouraged already this morning by two people, Joseph McClung and Justin Slauson. I told them I was going to call them out. They, uh, we were talking in the back, and I was like, Jonah chapter 3, you guys excited about it? They're like, yeah. And I was like, did y'all read it? And they said, no. <laughs> it was funny, though. Um, but we do encourage you to read along with us. Part of expository preaching, going through books of the Bible like this, gives you that opportunity to prepare yourself to, to get the most out of what God's going to say. We think uh, Scripture can and often does speak for itself, but we also see in Scripture that they gather together to proclaim these truths, the gospel truth, um, to see it, it effectively change life. And that's, that's the message today, that Jonah goes and he preaches this word to the Ninevites. And, and they hear and they believe. And it's, it's a beautiful picture. And just in case you didn't read it, we're going to just go ahead and read through the whole chapter. It's ten verses, not very long. And then we're going to spend some time just breaking it down. We're going to walk through and see uh, what's going on here. So Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes, and, and issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw that they, what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have preserved it in a way that uh, we could today, thousands of years later, read it and see it as good and as true. We pray that it would be more than words on a page or a screen, but that you would 
uh, you would see it to cut deep into us, that convict us of our sin, but also nourish us and bring us to health. And, and let us see that the gospel is good news, that we are your chosen people, that you've set us apart, that you've made us something we could not have made ourselves, and that you have uh, placed us here to be on mission, to see this truth affect us in a way that we live it out every day to your glory. And so we pray that this morning as we walk through this passage that you would reveal to us uh, deeper things that are, are what's on the surface, that we would see that it's more than, than what we just read, God, but that you would use it in a way that would significantly change things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I like this chapter, especially in comparison to, to what we've read in the previous two chapters when we consider some crazy things went on. First of all, this guy, prophet of God, runs from God. Jonah, that's who we're talking about. He runs from God in complete and utter rebellion and gets caught up in a storm, tossed into a sea, going to his death, sinking to the bottom of the sea, eaten by fish, vomited onto shore. So that's what we've gone through so far. So in comparison, this seems to be very simple, straightforward. Nothing out of the ordinary as far as what we're concerned with seems like pretty normal things going on here. But I would go, I would actually say that this passage for me is one of the more difficult parts of the story to accept. In fact, I would say that, that what happens in this passage is the most miraculous part of this entire book. And, and to really see that, I would, I would like to walk through almost verse by verse, sometimes we'll take a couple at a time, and see what's going on. So this is hopefully going to be a time of, of just reflecting on what's going on here. We're going to give you some background so you can see a bigger picture of what's going on. And then I think this, this one truth will ring out in the end, and that's what we'll emphasize. And so let's take a look at verses 1 and 2. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it this message I tell you. So right off we see Jonah is sent to Nineveh. So if you were with us last week, the last chapter ended with fish vomited Jonah onto the shore. And this chapter starts with immediately God says, get up, go to the city that he originally sent him to. And, and it's interesting that he doesn't say, Jonah, I know a fish just vomited you. So take time, clean yourself up, change your shirt, get a shower, do everything necessary to prepare yourself for this Big deal, because this is a huge city of people who don't know me that I'm sending you to. He doesn't give him that time to prepare. He says, get up and go to the city. And this time he doesn't even tell him what to say. He says, I'll tell you what to say once you get there. So it's quite different from the first chapter, um, but it's, it's important as we read through this and consider what's going on. Consider yourself and where you stand with God and what he's asking you to do. Verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So in contrast to this first chapter, if you have your Bible open, you can see in this first chapter, verse 3, it says, Jonah, arise. And, and instead of, it's the same two words, Jonah, arise. But instead of going to Nineveh, it says to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. In contrast, this says, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So this it's, it's poetic even that, that instead of getting up and running, he gets up and he goes with God. And so there's significance 
there. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. So typically, they measure city, in this time, they measure city by the circumference. So no one does that now. I mean, we have borders, but people don't say, how big's Monroe? Well, this many miles around. No one does that. That'd be weird. Usually we talk about population. Well, this says three days in breadth. So we're talking width. So there's a lot of debate on whether that what exactly they're talking about because we know through archaeological studies that this was the city of Nineveh. They had a huge wall that went around their city. It's, it's, the wall was really tall, but it was also as wide as three chariots sitting side by side. So it's a well-protected city. And, and around the city, just like cities in America, there's this suburb-type area where people live in the villages around the city. And so we're, when we take all of that into consideration, this place is humongous. Like, armies don't come against Nineveh. At one point, it was the capital of the most powerful nation in the world. So this is a big city. And it's so big that it's going to take days to travel through, or just even to walk straight through. It would take three days. And so... Jonah begins this journey into this massive city to preach this message to these people who don't know God. In verse 4, Jonah began into the, to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he calls out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now this verse is going to take a little more than just a quick explanation. Forty days, and the city will be overthrown. So I'm reading the ESV, the English Standard Version. That's eight words in his sermon. In the, in the ESV, if in Hebrew or Aramaic, which he probably spoke, it's five words. So five-word sermon. He may have said more. He could have said more. He probably said more. But all we know is he said at least these five words. And it's not a very beautiful sermon. It's not well put together. It's not good news. There's no warm fuzzies coating it. It didn't sugarcoat it. It didn't open with a funny story. It's just, hey, it's going to be over soon. You got 40 days. It's not even a repent and believe sermon. It's not a turn or burn sermon. It's, you're going to burn! Exclamation point. This is not good news looking at it on the surface. And so Jonah withholds any sense of a condition to his statement. He doesn't say, unless. He doesn't say, here's your other option. All he says is, and even if this is a summary of the major sermon, all he says is, 40 days, and you're going to be overturned, overthrown. And this word overthrown in the, in the Hebrew is used elsewhere in the Old Testament. And in one specific passage, it's used in Genesis chapter 19, 24 to 25. If you're familiar with the city Sodom and, and the city Gomorrah, known for their evilness, God destroys them. And it says this, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew these cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. It went badly for Sodom and Gomorrah. This word overthrown in the Hebrew lexicon means to cause ruin as an extension of flipping over an object. That's God flipping over and out, completely destroying, breaking everything, taking out all life, complete, complete annihilation. And that is Jonah's sermon. He's saying to these people, it's over. Everything's gone. You think you're big, you think you're powerful, you take pride in your greatness, it's 
over. You have 40 days, and it's over. So appearing to be without condition, we know that there is, in fact, a condition, as usually there is when God's prophets bring a message. There is this condition underlying that if the people would repent, God would relent. And we find out next week, when Jared preaches the the final sermon in the series, we find out that Jonah knew this. He knew God would forgive them. He knew God would relent from his destruction, but he doesn't tell them. All he says is, it's over. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, it's over, exclamation point. And how do they respond? Verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called out for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So how do these people respond? They believe. These foreigners, these people not of God, respond to this message of doom with belief. There's something here. This is like, it's like a building analogy almost. There's something here. Like you all, we can almost see what God's saying. You can almost feel the point of this. It's building to be something more significant. These people, foreign to God, not knowing this Hebrew God, not knowing Yahweh at all. In fact, many times against the Israelite people. Hear this message. You're going to die. From a guy who smells like fish. A guy they've never seen before. One man. No army would come against this nation and, and win. Nothing takes Nineveh. No one does. But this man comes into their city with this five word sermon. And they rip off their their robes. They sit in ashes. They put on sackcloth. Everyone, not even the animals get to eat or drink. Complete and total repentance. Complete and total repentance. And as often the case in Hebrew, they take the verb and they put it first in the sentence. We see verse 5. The first word in the sentence in Hebrew is belief. And then it goes on to say the king heard and he issued this this decree. But this isn't chronological, okay? So the king issued the decree and then the people did it. But it's such an urgent matter that they responded in repentance that it's the first thing that's said after the sermon. Belief. You're going to be destroyed. Belief springs out of that. And then then it goes on and, and this to me, is the most shocking part of the whole story that these people would give up everything. That these people would hear these words and then give up everything. Their clothes sitting in the ashes. The, the cows are crying out, probably just because they're hungry, but it implies the cows are crying out to God. Even everyone's crying out to God for mercy because they know and they believe and their actions follow their belief. And so I think about Monroe. And I think about 
the, the screaming preachers I've seen on the, street, the streets that have no effect. And I think about the message that I could bring to the people and have no effect. And I think about the people in my life who I just desperately want them to know the gospel. And you guys know people like that. You just want them to know what's true. And this sounds absurd. That's why I say this is the most miraculous thing that happens in this book. Because these people, they're so far from God. Hear hardly anything. There's not even a glimmer of hope in the sermon. And they believe that God will show mercy. How do we know that's what they believe? Why would they cry out for any other reason? Why would these people abandon all of their gods, all of their goods, all of their their high, powerful, prideful status, their positions of authority? Why would they abandon their thrones and sit in the ashes and humble themselves before God they don't even believe in? Because they're serious about their repentance. Why would they do that? Verse 9, because who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I mean, what else do they have to lose? They're crying out with all that they have to cry out. They're giving up everything else because there's nothing else they believe they're truly doomed. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, he relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So this king of a a foreign race, of a foreign nation, not of God's people, has more hope than Jonah even had. He he has this hope that God will relent for the concern of his people that Jonah never had a concern for. He was just doing what he was told to do And we'll see a better picture of his heart in chapter 4 next week. But the message is clear. Nineveh will be overthrown. And if that's true, then why did God not do it? Why would God say he's going to do something and then not do it? It would be really easy for me to just avoid that question. Because it's a hard question. So is God lying when he says he's going to overthrow Nineveh? Or did God change his mind? That's our options, right? Is our God a liar or is he fickle? Is our God going to say he's going to do something and then not do it? Hopefully that's not true, right? Because he said some good things that I really want him to do, like save me. Or did God change his mind and he can just change his mind whenever he wants? Now we see in Scripture God is a God who doesn't change. And we see in the Scripture God is it not a man, so we cannot lie. We see those things. So what's going on here? What, how is this possible? And it's not the only place this happens. It happens other times where God relents. He withholds his wrath. Fortunately, when it happens, it's usually for the good of the people that God would not destroy, <laughs> that God would not kill. But I think it's an important question for us to ask, and, and, and I think that we can see a little better uh, when it's not in English. So everyone open your Hebrew Bibles. I'm just kidding. If you have one, go ahead and open it up. Um, and so there were some words that had to be done here with this word I mentioned before, overthrow. Now, uh, it really looks like God intends to destroy Nineveh. And then they repent and God changes his mind. That's what it looks like straightforward out of the text. So what's really going on here? Is that our God? Do we know him to be that way? And I think that there's more here going on that we don't see with this word overthrow to cause ruin as an extension of flipping over 
an object. And, and I think it's, there's a beautiful picture of it whenever God appoints Saul as the king of Israel. And he does so by sending his prophet Samuel. And Samuel goes, finds Saul. Saul's out looking for donkeys. They ran away from home. You know the story. It's kind of funny. There's a joke there, but I'm going to skip it. And I'll tell you later in private. All right. So he finds Saul. He anoints Saul. He speaks over Saul the prophecy of the Lord that you will do these things. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 9, it says, When he turned his back to leave Samuel, this, when Saul turns his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all the signs came to pass that day. So in English, it has nothing to do with Jonah. I don't see any connection at all. But in Hebrew, this word, God gave him another heart. This word gave is the exact same word as overthrown in Jonah. It's the same word as overthrown in Sodom and Gomorrah. Why does that matter? Because there's this external overthrowing of things that causes destruction and brings about complete annihilation. There's this internal overthrowing of things that brings about life and belief and repentance. And so what we see happening here in Jonah is by the mercy of God, by the greatness of God, very much without stretching hermeneutics too thin, without, without messing up interpretation of words too much. It's very much God doing what he said he was going to do. And so rather than breaking them externally, he breaks them of their wickedness. He breaks them of their pride. He breaks them of their false belief. He gives them new hearts. He gives them new belief. And in this culture, the putting on of sackcloths and the sitting in ashes is a common practice for mourning because of inward brokenness. So this word overthrow is much like the English word broken. I, I dropped my coffee mug on the ground and it's broken. I am sad about whatever and I'm broken. God has revealed to me my sin and my need for repentance and I'm broken. Nineveh is a wicked city doomed to destruction and God gives them belief. How could he give them belief without first letting them see their wickedness? God opens blind eyes. We saw that in Jonah last chapter. He was hardened. He was running. And God brought about some, some devastating things and broke him to discipline him because he loved him. And then Jonah repents. And the same thing is happening in Nineveh. And some people would say that their repentance wasn't genuine. And they, they would even go as far as to say, they didn't actually believe. And I don't know how you get that out of there. Clearly there's belief. Clearly there's repentance. Maybe it wasn't like deep repentance. Maybe it was, okay, this is bad. Let's, let's stop doing the bad for a moment. We do know that Nineveh was eventually destroyed. So that did happen. But what we can see clearly here that I think is significant for us is this picture of who our God really is. A merciful, great God in control of all things. And so when we consider that even if it was a shallow repentance, even if it wasn't long-term repentance, that God is not going to destroy us. But instead, He would renew our hearts and give us belief. And consider that Jonah, Jesus said, Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish and came out. Jonah experienced this 
death and resurrection. And Jesus, the better Jonah, he says this. Jesus says, I'm the better Jonah, has given us something that isn't shallow. That even if the gospel that Jonah preached to the Ninevites that brought about belief and repentance was temporary, even if it was, doesn't matter. When we consider Jesus is the better Jonah. And Jesus has died and spent three days in the tomb and rose from the dead to bring about life that will last for eternity. And that's something we can celebrate, that it's a glimpse, a picture of Jesus. And that is what it is. That's why he points it out. The Old Testament points to Jesus. The New Testament points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's always been all about Jesus. And though it actually happened, it's a picture of something much deeper and much better than anything shallow. And let's bring this to Monroe in this century. It is our desire as the Crossing Church to see the city of Monroe transformed by the gospel, to see the surrounding area changed by the gospel, to see people we know and love changed by the gospel, to see revival in Monroe like it was seen in Nineveh, to see a proclamation of truth go out and the people believe, and to look at this story and see that Jonah just preached what God told him to preach and they believed should free us to just preach what God has told us to preach and trust God with belief. Because as we, as we learned in chapter 2, salvation belongs to the Lord. And no matter how desperately I want to see lost people in my life saved, I have no control over their hearts. It's up to God to overthrow their hearts. And that's hard for us. And I know that because even just in our missional community, we talk often about these people we want to see saved. There's, there's sons and there's brothers and there's sisters and there's parents and there's loved, loved co-workers and, and there's people we know are far from God and will deny God and fight against it. And we have experienced this gospel renewal within us and we see Christ is the only hope and we see that there's life to be lived and enjoyment in Christ and there's emptiness and a continual seeking after satisfaction in the world and we want people to see truth in the gospel and you and you're probably thinking of people you know right now and you desperately want them to know this God and and I want to free you from feeling this this obligation this responsibility for their lostness but not from proclaiming what's true you continue to preach what's true. You continue to demonstrate the gospel to them. And then you trust God to do the saving. He changes hearts. And, and there's this delicate balance between these things because there should be this angst in you like there is for me when I stand here and I preach to you. I have this angst for you to, to hear gospel truth, to believe it, to weed out all the junk, all the things I would say that are wrong and slightly off balance, to, to forget those things. I want that. And to hear the truth ring out and to, to let it grip you in a way that would propel you to truth, that you wouldn't even hesitate to sit down and, and try to figure out the best strategy for saying things the right way so that they hear it rightly and get saved because your words matter. Those things are important, but trust God with everything and you obey. There's no need here. There's not even room here for you to clean up. There's no room for you to get the fish stink off of you before you bring the gospel. Just, just preach, just obey, just go because Monroe needs the gospel. And I think if Jonah is our role model, 
then we should feel pretty relieved because he really messed it up. Even if you're running from the call right now, even if you're running from God, he could still use you like he used Jonah. Even if you have an apathetic heart, keep doing what you know to do and pray that God would change that heart in you through your obedience because he can still use it to save money. You, you don't change the power of the gospel, but you can stop yourself from living in the freedom of the gospel with your apathy and with your rebellion. And so there's a call for us to repent and believe and trust God to save us in the process of saving others, to sanctify us in the, in the sacrifice it takes to, to continue to fight with the ones we love, to continue to preach truth, to continue to stand for what we know is right because we love. And, and I think this story reveals to us how this renewal is going to come about in Monroe. Jonah ran from God in his self-righteousness. God came after him and disciplined him in love to break him of that self-righteousness. Jonah went down to the grave. He sank to, the, to Sheol. He sank and realized his death. Spent three days in a fish and was resurrected. Brought back from the dead directly onto the shore to be on mission. And that mission is to proclaim the word of God in obedience to Nineveh. And there's this incredible significance of Jonah being resurrected because our dependence is on the resurrection of Christ, is on the resurrection of ourself. That we would die to the flesh daily and be made new in Christ daily and then immediately move to mission. That is the picture we see here. And so God has resurrected Jesus, the better Jonah, from the grave and he sends out his people onto mission to save the foreigners of the, of the, of the world. So we're the people of God. We're the church. We belong to Him. We've been set apart and we're to go out. We're foreigners in this land. We're to go out and we're to minister the gospel and see God add to that number and bring more and more into the family. And with Jonah, failing and failing and failing and then obeying, we can see our failures don't stop it. And we can find hope in knowing that even if we lack the compassion that's necessary to save Monroe, God has compassion on this city like he had it on Nineveh. And he wants to use us to, to feel that compassion. He wants to help us feel that compassion. And he brings that about as we serve and as we see ourselves as the church on mission. Having been saved by God, we either are going to live absorbed in ourselves, trying to fix our own problems, constantly reflecting on how much we screw up, seeing what else we need to change, what else we need to fix, and, and be very inward focused. Or we're going to find the nice balance of repenting of our sin and moving to mission. Repenting of our sin and moving to mission because we believe the gospel's true. And we've already begun to see it in this church that when we're on mission, God brings us closer together and He brings more and more to our awareness the need to do the inward work. And we'll keep doing that. But as we're on mission, as we're serving the hurting and the lost, as we see the lost saved, God is doing this renewing in us. I think a great example is uh, the Parkview apartment ministry that First Baptist Monroe does. And several of, of us, or several of the missional community here in Monroe are involved with that ministry. And, we, and some of us have been there for years. And, and honestly, it's draining. Honestly, sometimes it's very difficult. Because for years... We've been at this and seen very little fruit. 
And even though there's been some salvation worth rejoicing over, certainly, even from those who've been saved, there's very little fruit. And so it raises some question, how much is God actually doing here? And why can't I just make them believe? Why can't I just say, believe this? So every other Thursday, we bring this group of middle school, high school boys into a room, and I, and I tell them the gospel. And sometimes I have them tell it to me because I've heard it plenty. And there's very little fruit. And there's these glimmers of hope that we see every once in a while, of genuine belief, of genuine interest in knowing more. And so we, we stop and in our flesh, I think, is it worth doing? Should we quit? And we don't. Because in our obedience and our service, I'm seeing God sanctify us. Give us a better picture of what it means to be after something. What it means to be on mission. To serve those who are needy because they're very underprivileged. They're very much without. And to offer them their greatest hope constantly. And, and grateful, I'm grateful to have seen God work in some of their hearts but I'm broken because there's some that are still so very lost, stuck in a cycle that they're just not going to be able to get out of. There's some of them who are going to, they're raised in this neighborhood, tons of violence, losing their lives. Just like every year, multiple people die in this neighborhood of Monroe, Louisiana that very few people know about because violence is great. Wickedness is great. Sin abounds. But grace is still very much. There's still hope. There's still gospel light, but it should raise our awareness to the, to the work that needs to be done in Monroe. This is our city. There's more to Monroe than north of the interstate. We have to see the bigness of our city. We need to see the bigness of, of the wickedness of our city and then remember the greatness of our God, how merciful He is and how He has saved Nineveh and Monroe's no, no worse off. It's possible. Let's believe it. Let's pursue it. Let's be on mission and see that it's not in our hands to change hearts, but God's. And let's trust Him to do so. And as a reminder, in this, in this worship gathering time, we like to read a lot of Scripture. I don't know if you've noticed. We read Scripture in the beginning, sometimes we read it somewhere in the middle and at the end and, and certainly during the sermon. Um, so we want to emphasize as often as possible how Scripture is very much the word of our living God. And it cuts deep. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces deep into the division of the soul and the spirit. And it, it even cuts the joint and the marrow. And it's discerning the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. So what no one else can see, Scripture sees. The Word of God sees. God sees our hearts and our motives. But not only that, it's breathed out by our God and it's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training up in righteousness. So we seek to read it as often as we possibly can. It's why we say read your Bible. It's not just this legalistic thing. You need to read your Bible. It is life. It breathes life into us. It convicts us of our sin. It brings out the truth and it, it shows us how we should live this life, and it glorifies our God, and it's for our good. And so I want to read Scripture. In Romans chapter 10, in light of everything that we've just said, hear this passage. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. 
Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, between the people of God and the foreigners. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not ever heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Let us be encouraged by this passage that belief will come. God brings the belief. We preach what's true because God has sent us and how beautiful it is that he has sent us to preach this truth. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that just through walking through one chapter of scripture, you can reveal so much truth. You can reveal our wickedness, our need for repentance, and you can help us see how this gospel has propelled us to mission in a way that we can depend on you to save the lost, in a way that we can see that it's not our doing, but your doing that will undo the wickedness of our hearts. And that with that belief and that understanding, we can live in obedience. So what is success, God? Obedience. Let us be successful in our obedience, God. Help us to see what is true, that you are great, that you are merciful, that you are gracious, and that you will always and forever be the Lord of salvation. We thank you for Jesus, that he has done the work to save us, and that he will continue to do the work of salvation in us as we are faithfully living on mission. In Jesus' name, amen.